Good morning, everyone. This is uh, not a guided meditation, so I'd like to ask for your uh, open-eyed kind of attention with uh, corresponding neocortical activity. I need you to listen. Yeah? (coughs) This is our second day. We uh, are approaching the topic of how we relate to body and the embodied experience. This is a crucial issue in contemplative traditions. Early Buddhism makes no exception, and it sounds a lot simpler than it actually is. Our relationship to body is fraught. Uh, We are highly biased in favor of pleasant body states. Uh, We vary a little bit what we consider pleasant body states. Um, But we generally agree that it's easy to be attentive when the body experiences pleasure. Willy-nilly, we agree that we give the body attention when it is in discomfort or in pain. But in between these states of pain and pleasure, there's a huge segment of bodily experience that we generally find boring and we find not really very attractive to attend to. How many of you are right now fascinated with the digestive processes connected with your breakfast? Yeah. So we are somewhat biased when it comes to relating to the body because there's a, there's a pleasure bias in there which is in the whole system. We, our attention is profoundly connected to a pleasure-seeking and pain or discomfort-avoiding strategy that we often are not aware of this connection. This is so fast and so natural that I gravitate, apparently, naturally and organically, towards that which feels good in the body, in our example, and move away from that which doesn't feel good. There's some evolutionary bias in this as well, which is quite useful, but what is evolutionary useful isn't always really that enlightening. That's the sad truth. Some of the stuff that has evolutionary got us out of the trees and made us a successful species is actually a catastrophe in terms of happiness, contentment, and particularly in terms of awakening. So we can't count on evolution when it comes to waking up. Some of the stuff that is indispensable from an evolutionary point of view is not actually very helpful from a point of waking up. Irrespective of whether you take this waking up to be a spiritual thing or a psychological thing or just a humanist thing, it's obvious that our involuntary attention is guided by seeking pleasure and by avoiding pain. That's what makes meditation difficult. We give very simple instructions. Feel the body. Stay with the breath. Acknowledge the present. That sounds very simple, isn't it? And yet it's not. And it's not simple because despite the simplicity of the instruction, we keep meeting tendencies of attentional patterns that are not, that, that want something else. So one way of learning about these attentional patterns 
assume that you have attentional patterns as you have perceptual patterns, as you have emotional patterns, in the same way as you have a recognizable gait. Your friends will recognize your gait. hundred yards away they will recognize who you are just by the way you walk. Because you have a distinctive way of walking. All of us have a distinctive way of walking. Easily recognizable. Sometimes 20 years after you recognize somebody's gait. Happened to me. So, the same happens to our attentional patterning. And one of the difficult things in meditation practice is that we keep meeting our attentional habits when we're trying to do something as simple as following the breath, feeling the belly, widening uh, our field of attention to something slightly diffuse as a, a diaphragm or as a sense of warmth that spreads from my belly to the right side. This is difficult because it runs counter to our attentional habits. So one of the things we need to learn, or we need to become aware of what's already happening. In my ideal scenario, meditation teaching would run something like this. You all start at zero. I give you my best possible bet, what I have understood of the Buddha's fabulous teaching, and then you start doing that from zero. But this is never going to take place, because we already know secretly, deep down, what meditation is. We believe to know. We wouldn't admit that. We hear selectively what confirms what I already believe to be true. We don't hear what doesn't confirm. So ultimately, whatever I say, you guys are just going to hear what you like to hear. And you're not going to listen to what you don't like to hear. Or you, if you're slightly differently knitted, you will only hear what you don't like to hear. (laughs) So you see, that makes the game all a lot more complicated. And there's no other way around this, then we need to start from where we are and find out what is actually happening. When I sit down, when I try to be present, what is actually happening? How much of me is happening? Where does it want to go? What does it try to do? And become more deeply and more allowingly, thank you, aware of what that process is. Any type of meditation I'm going to do will need to take into account where I'm coming from. Otherwise we fiddle, compensate, overcompensate, displace, deny. It's like starting a posture from the top of your neck. If you're sitting with a tilted pelvis, there's no may how many no matter how much you correct up here, you you will never arrive at this a reasonably straight spine. You need to start at the bottom. And then you may work with the little imbalances further up. But unless you start at the bottom and establish a foundation, everything you pile on top is just going to be in some way precarious or compensatory. So we need to find out what is happening with our attention. And we need to find out how we relate to the experience of being embodied. This isn't as easy as it sounds, because we have learned things about meditation. One of the things we have learned is that meditation is observing. So, we create a relationship to our own experience on the basis 
of our visual sense. Famous ocular metaphor. I construe a relationship to my own experience on the basis of seeing. This is valid. Seeing things is important. You know, human beings have developed the sight function of sight to a great degree, managed arriving at creating depth, you know, which has given us a tremendous evolutionary advantage. But seeing is a particular type of relationship, and some things are not actually helped if we keep trying to see them. Some things actually need to be felt or tasted. They need to be sniffed out. They need to be listened to. So if we keep relating to ourselves in a relationship construed in analogy to the sense of seeing, we get a very particular type of relationship. One, for example, that always creates distance. The seeing relationship is always a distancing relationship. For some things that's very useful. Fear, anger. For other things it's not at all useful. It's just dissociative. It just makes us move away from things. And our meditation practice becomes a practice of moving away from things, of putting things away, of going away from them. For body, this doesn't work at all. Seeing and observing the body is not in any way very useful, to be frank with you. The body, as an experience, unfolds its power as a meditational process and object, not through the act of observing the body, but through the act of feeling the body. We connect with sensations. How does that go? Well, this is very easy. The first thing is we need to shift attention and think of inhabiting. When we attend to something in my belly or in my heart or in my bum or in my shoulder, then we go there. Think of it as a place, as a way of going there with your attention. Going to that place where you feel something (coughs) and then inhabit that space. Rather than being here on top and observe it somewhere from an orbital position, kind of in a long safe distance and kind of get a clear idea what it looks from high above. That's a very different type of relationship to body. Meditators are prone to observing. They do something called vipassana, which means clear seeing. Then they have meditation teachers who tell them to watch the breath, have insights, you know, observe their experience, be a witness to their own stuff. We've been all sinning in this department for many years, and it's time that we stop and wake up on this one. There's much more to vipassana than just seeing. There's much more to meditation practice than just observing and witnessing and becoming dissociated and helpless witnesses of our own experience and hope that the bad stuff is going to stop on its own accord. We're called into a relationship. That's as simple as that. That's what meditation is. We're called into a form of relationship. And as in any relationship, it needs different things. Sometimes it needs holding back. It needs patience. Sometimes it needs clarity. Sometimes it needs the guts to state a wish. Sometimes it needs gentle prodding. Sometimes it needs nudging and inquiring. Relationships need different things. We all know that. Screaming little kids don't just want to be mindfully observed. 
know, doesn't really help them that much. The same is true for our own meditative process. So if we try to map that to kayanupassana, as this thing is called in Pali, body, uh, mindfulness of body, then we encounter um, a variety of phenomena. One of them is that body sensations do move mostly slow. If our attentional habit is to follow thought, then we not just need to change our channel from discursive processes to somatic processes. We also need to actually train our attention almost to change its mesh because the, the raw material in discursive, in the discursive corner is fast, is flitting, it's fairly contoured, it's chiseled, it's self-declarative, it says what it means, yeah? thoughts, they talk. Body sensations don't talk. Yeah? They're kind of diffuse, amorphous. They meander from one corner of the body to the next. They don't say what they're about. They're not clearly and precisely delineated often. So not just do I have to look in a different corner, but I also have to have a different mesh in my attention to be able to be with, say, a bodily process. That's necessary that we acknowledge this. This is not straightforward and easy. If I'm looking just in a different corner and relate to my physical sensations in the same way as I relate to thought, then that means I'm just not getting it. There's just nothing happened there. You know, it's not clear enough. Particularly the masculine mind who often likes clarity. You know, just tell me this straight scoop. You know, and I, I can handle it. Don't give me this fudgy amorphous stuff. If you go with that mind into feelings and sensations, it's just not happening. Yeah. It's never going to be clear enough. Only when it's getting painful, it's going to be clear enough. Or when it really tastes good. Yeah. But in between, then I just grasp into the empty space. So I need to learn to need my attention in ways that can acknowledge, that this attention can acknowledge the slowness, the diffuseness, the lack of specificity in sensation, or the apparent lack of specificity. Once I'm getting in there, it's going to be very specific, and it's going to be very revealing. Yeah. So, enough theory. There's two practical things in this. Attention, um, more on this later, attention has generally a focus, and we often do not acknowledge to ourselves what focus we operate on. There's a kind of attention that has a, a laser beam quality, and there's a kind of attention that is big and broad. So I, I like to speak of uh, something called object attention, uh, or object awareness, and field awareness. Hmm? Object awareness is easy. You get the most intense point of a sensation, and you take that as a starting point. You go there, and then you spread from there. You're asking for the edges of something. You're asking, where does it stop? How far does it extend? What does it hang together with? And gradually you envelop the object of your sensation. You envelop it with a welcoming kind of spacious attention. And what happens is that the f that object seems to be getting bigger. You get more and more of it. Yeah? When you get more of it, this begins to expand. 
And what was started off as a topical object you attended to becomes suddenly an area, or a, let's call it a field. It becomes a, a bigger place which you can infuse and inhabit with your attention. Yeah? And it becomes easier to stay there. It sounds more complicated than it is. But you think of your toes. You start with a concept in your head, toes. There was 10 of them last time I counted. How many of them do I feel now? Oh, there's a big one, there's a long one. Now they start tingling. And now suddenly the space that began with an idea and the question, toes, where are you? What do I feel of you? And that is responded to with the tingling. And then the tingling helps me to expand my attention there. And with the expansion of the attention, more, more and more toes come on board. Yeah? That's the principle. So I'd like to invite you today to experiment with this. When we speak of feeling the body, first of all, try to be careful that you do not observe the body, that you do not think the body, but that you simply move your attention to particular parts of the body and then you go and live there for a moment. You inhabit that part. Get a size of a knee or get a feeling of the solidity of your pelvic bone. And you just take the time to inhabit that space and feel how this feels there, not in your head. That's the first one. Then the second one is that you experiment to expand. Going there, connecting, and be guided by the analogy of touch. This is a powerful metaphor. Touch is a powerful metaphor. You see, if you are having the metaphor of seeing, then it means that you can possibly see somebody without them seeing you. So your relationship may be quite uh, unequal. Yeah? At, at its worst, it may be voyeuristic. Yeah? You never get this kind of relationship with touch. If you touch somebody, you are equally touched. Yeah? So in some ways, you're on a much more eye-level relationship when it comes to your relating to yourself on a touching level. Yeah. You are a much more um, present, <laughs> embodied. You're much more in it. Yeah. You're not in control. Our most controlling sense is our eyes. You know, we can close them to start with. We can turn our heads. We can turn our eyes. I can't do that with my ears, for example. When I'm in a listening space, I, my body center goes somewhere else, goes down. Many of us, if we want to listen intently, we close our eyes. So we have very different relationships, whether we are seers or whether we are hearers or whether we are touchers. And it's important to use these different possibilities of relating to our own experience. Otherwise, we habitually go into a sort of mildly dissociated cognitive observing mode, which is useful for some things, but is unfortunately not very useful for many, many other things. Yeah. Understanding things, feeling things, transforming things. Just putting them into a distance is not helping. It makes, it's a good intervention technique against flooding emotions, but it doesn't transform emotions. It doesn't tell you something. It doesn't give you necessary more competence in being with this, or in transforming this, or even in understanding this. All you do is you make it go away. You feel safe. That feels good. Your stress levels go down. 
But the issue hasn't changed. You haven't changed. All you have done is a little bit of palliative meditation practice. It doesn't need to be as bad. I exaggerate. I hope you know this. But I like to help you become aware of what you're already doing. We all already have attentional habits. We all already have notions of how it is when I meditate, what I'm supposed to do, what I'm never getting at. Yeah? So let these things become as conscious as possible. And just try to be curious. Think of uh, children, you know, in their unmatched sensuality and honesty in which they inquire, their curiosity, their kind of capacity to ask questions adults don't dare asking anymore. Think of that when you ask what the body feels, how much of the body um, you actually feel when you sit here, whether there is a way that you can create for yourself a profound sense of okayness. Even though you may be getting older or had a bad night or have a slightly upset stomach, there are still bits in you that will be profoundly okay. And it's important that we keep reconnecting to that okay bit before we attend too many to our hang-ups and uh, all the things you may think of uh, you should learn or you should let go of or are embarrassing or difficult in your life. Good, let's switch modes. <clears throat> Please take up a comfortable and upright posture. We are strangely um, poor when it comes to words for our sensate experience. We have many more flavors of felt, tactile experience than we have usually words for. So don't let this uh, be an obstacle to you actually feeling things that you may not have names for. One very easy tactile quality is the quality of weight. It's one of the most reliable ones. So if you close your eyes, if you sense your hips and your shoulders aligned, And you sense the distribution of the, the body's weight onto your left side, onto your right side. Just acknowledge. Can you feel your sit bones? Can you feel whether you sit on top of them or slightly in front of them? Or whether you don't feel anything at all? Then just ask yourself, where does the weight of this body go? Most of us are slightly asymmetrical in our faces, in the placement of our ears, in the way our hairs grow, the sizes of our eyes, the way our spines are bent. And we also have asymmetries in the way we experience sensations. So check 
we can make use of the asymmetry in our bodily experience and just compare how much weight does my left side carry how much weight does my right side carry right now sit bones my bum my thighs knees just acknowledge don't even try to optimize just acknowledge We're often so impatient to optimize and fix and improve. Let us just acknowledge where does this weight go? How big is the surface that this weight is distributed on? Can you feel the weight of your hands on your legs? Can you feel the weight of your lower arms and your elbows and your shoulder joints? Just a hanging quality of, oh, I don't know, probably more than a kilo of arm hanging there, right from your, each of your shoulder. Can you trace the size of your hand on your legs? Tracing that warmth which is not quite clear, is this the warmth of the hand or is this the warmth of the leg? But it's clearly discernible. Another very reliable sensation, temperature. Let's take a moment to trace those hands on each of our legs, if they're on your legs, if they're folded in your lap, trace them there. Get a feeling for the surface. Our first dimension of <coughs> sensate quality is what Buddhist psychology calls the earth element. One of its features is expanse. It takes space. It covers area. Extension, technically speaking. One of the main features of the earth element. So we could go into quite some detail in doing this. Connecting with the tactile surface of our bodies skin, our biggest organ and its exquisite sensitivity. And our probably patchy awareness, some parts of that skin will be highly aware of clothing, temperature differences, a slight draft over the back of my hands right now, in my neck. Other areas of the skin seem strangely quiet, 
I believed him to be equally covered, but somehow I don't seem to be feeling them as clearly. Take a note. Then there's sensations that are in the inner of the body, not connected with our skin. Sensations that we would go by other names, we would call them textures maybe, pressure, tension, density. This body can feel its inner parts without the involvement of our tactile sense. We can feel the placement of, of, our, of our body in space. One aspect of mindfulness of bodies the position and the orientation of this body in space. Today we would speak in other terms of that. We would speak of proprioception, the fact that the body knows where other parts of itself are, that my right hand knows where my left hand is without me looking, that I can feel that my shoulders are above my hips, with this amazing inner sense that tells me the relatedness of parts of this body to other parts. See whether this is true. Can you feel that you're upright or not? Can you feel that you're balanced or not? This strange and vertical dimension of the sitting posture, this paradox we all ask you to engage with and to, re- to grapple with, to be upright and relaxed at the same time. Can you sense where the gravity pulls most overtly on your posture? Take a moment to note just the length of yourself while you sit here. Just the top of your cranium, right down to your pelvis and your sit bones. Quite a distance, isn't it?
Finally, there's a third dimension of my felt experience. <coughs> this third dimension is about volume. It's about the fact that this body isn't just surface and isn't just height. It also has enfolded space. That's in fact how we begin very early on. Very, very early on in our development, cell mitosis, a little heap of cells gradually bending and curving, enfolding space, growing organs out of the space, establishing a midline and a spine. Echoes of this process can be found in our spaces, in our inner spaces. So we take space, there's something happen, happening between shoulder and shoulder, between my belly button and the back of my spine. An easy way to connect with that space is when I acknowledge the widening of my ribcage on every in-breath. Every in-breath widens the space this body inhabits and relaxes with every out-breath. So that's an easy way how I can connect with the spaciousness of this body, with its volume, with its size. Spend the moment, see whether you can identify such spaces, space in your heart area, space in your pelvis, space in a leg, just and if you're Remaining in the domain of sensate awareness of feeling. Ask yourself, where does the space of the inside end and the space of the outside begin? Where does my inside end if I'm just bringing my attention to the feeling quality, if I'm relating to my experience as a feeler, as one that feels, where does my inside end and where does my outside begin? Is there a boundary at my skin, further out where my body temperature disappears or further out where my aura ends or is there a boundary at all? If I'm feeling the body, where does the inside of this body change to an outside? 
Ask yourself. Ask your body.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.